This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're donning our snap-brim fedoras and trench coats to investigate The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler, with our special guest, biographer Tom Williams. The Long Goodbye is Raymond Chandler's sixth novel, and features the further adventures of his most famous creation, private detective Philip Marlowe. After being contacted by his friend Terry Lennox, Marlowe finds himself embroiled in the aftermath of the murder of Lennox's wife, Sylvia. With Marlowe's help, Lennox flees to Mexico, where he commits suicide, leaving a full confession. Seemingly an open and shut case, the mystery surrounding her death only grows, and Marlowe traverses a scorching Los Angeles in search of answers from a range of oddballs and criminals, including an alcoholic crime writer and his mysterious wife, a crank doctor and his thug of an assistant, some Las Vegas gangsters who are haunted by their wartime experiences in the army, and the seductive Linda Loring, to whom Marlowe is inextricably drawn. While the novel contains many of the conventions of traditional detective fiction, The Long Goodbye is much looser, the mystery more sprawling and unsolvable, the tone more elegiac. Raymond Chandler was born in Chicago in 1888 and grew up in Ireland and London, where he attended Dulwich College. He became a naturalised British citizen in 1907 and worked as a civil servant and journalist in London. In 1912, he returned to America, first living in San Francisco and then Los Angeles. In 1917, he returned to Europe to fight in the trenches of the First World War with the Canadian forces, after which he returned to Los Angeles, where he married Sissy Pascal, the mother of a friend. He began writing pulp fiction in 1933, publishing short stories in magazines, before introducing the world to Philip Marlowe in his 1939 novel The Big Sleep. Around the same time he began writing for Hollywood, most famously co-writing Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity in 1944 and Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train in 1951. His beloved wife Sissy died in 1954, after which Chandler succumbed to depression and alcoholism, eventually dying in 1959. Tom Williams is a biographer and writer. He was born in Newcastle and read English at University College London. He has worked in publishing and publishing technology, and in 2012 wrote A Mysterious Something in the Light, a biography of Raymond Chandler. He currently lives in Washington, D.C. 
For all the relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned, head to the description of this episode. I'm Graham Foster, and I spoke to Tom Williams about Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye in May 2023. I'm joined by Tom Williams, the biographer of Raymond Chandler, and as ever on the 99 Novels podcast, we, we like to find out how our guests discovered their the book that they're going to talk about. And we're talking about The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler today. So, Tom, when did you first discover The Long Goodbye and, and what did you first make of it? Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had a really interesting answer to this question. Um, but it's all tied to university. It's all uh, my, my sort of introduction to to Chandler was incredibly academic. I, I uh, took a seminar in crime writing, um, in crime fiction um, at UCL back in, I think, 2002, 2003. And in that class, we were, we were asked to read The Big Sleep and then Farewell My Lovely. And that was the first time I had experienced Chandler. I had heard of him, you know, but but I'd never you know, picked up one of his books. And all of a sudden, I, I, you know, I had a week to read these two novels and I, I, was, I was hooked. And there is something about the prose and the world that, that just you know, gets you, or at least got me. And very quickly, I started reading, reading through them. I, I think I read The Long Goodbye very early. I think, I mean, like, The Big Sleep and, and Fell My Lovely are kind of package deal. They're written very quickly after one another. The Long Goodbye um, is later. Um, but I, I think that was the one that I read next, in large part because I think, generally speaking, the, the, the kind of like the three great Chandra novels, um, and great, I'm, I'm using sort of in, 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 in quotes, are considered The Big Sleep, Fair My Lovely, and The Long Goodbye. And so those, I think I kind of saw those as a package and then I, I came to the others uh, a bit later. Um, but, but, but yeah, I, I still, I still remember very clearly sitting in a coffee shop in, in Camden town, um, working my way through the long goodbye and just thinking this was, you know, the best thing, <laughs> best thing ever, as you kind of do when you're 21. <laughs> everything seems to be the best thing about then. Well, I, I, I read The Long Goodbye for the first time for this podcast, and I am mm. far from 21. And I had a similar <laughs> reaction, to be honest with you. I, I was surprised at the novel. Uh, I was mm-hmm. surprised that it wasn't... I mean, we'll talk more in more detail, perhaps, about this later, but I was surprised that it wasn't just a mystery novel. Um, mm. I was surprised how literary it was. I was surprised how how um, sort of in depth and and complex the story was. Um, I I, w- I opened it expecting Pulp Fiction, and what I got was <laughs> was so much more. Had you read The Big Sleep or Farewell My Lovely or any of the other Chandler novels before? No, this was, was this my first Chandler. first Chandler. Yeah, and right, I, right, I'm, right. I'm looking looking at reading more. You know, it's uh, that's the, yeah. the brilliant thing about doing this this podcast is you discover um, out of the ninety nine <laughs> novels, I, I, you know, there is someone there that that you, has just sort of slipped slipped by. But um, yeah, well, I I think Chandler, I think I think Chandler is. I mean, I, the list is a fascinating list. I mean, there are so many 
there are so many novels that are that are obviously on there. The Heat of the Day, um, uh, Finnegan's Wake, um, The French Lieutenant's Woman. These feel like Catch Twenty Two. Um, these feel like the kind of the great novels, some of the great novels of the twentieth century. And then there are the ones that that I know of, <laughs> you know, but hadn't really. Um, hadn't really considered, or I mean, I've not read, so I don't know where they kind of, where they actually sit, but Cockshaw by Mordecai Rickler, which I think was on the very first Booker Prize list. Um, if not, certainly, I think Mordecai Rickler was was a sort of early Booker Prize nominee, if it wasn't for that book. Um, you know, ditto with um, someone like uh, 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 Len Dayton, Bomber, um, which is also not, I was also nominated for the Booker Prize, and I, you know, but but now I wouldn't think of reading those kind of books in, in quite the same way. Um, certainly, Len, Len Dayton is 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 a sort of modern, really modern, but he's a sort of charmer of his generation, a kind of crossover novelist. But yeah, that's the wonderful thing about the list, right? It, it makes you encourages you to look at uh, a wider range of you know a broader canon than perhaps one might see in a in a in a you know 101 novels you have to read before you die type list that's right it's very personal um mm, and, mm. and Bur burgess's sort of view of literature is is very diverse i think um i mean it could be more diverse in terms of how many women are on the list but, yeah um yeah in, in terms of styles it's very stylistically diverse um yeah but uh, talking about Burgess's list, out of all of Chandler's Marlowe novels, why do you why do you think Burgess chose this one? Why do you think he chose The Long Goodbye? And what was the novel's reputation in 1984? I think it's a a really interesting question. I've, I've got sort of like two parallel answers to it. One, so the first one is, is sort of why why he chose it. I think The Long Goodbye is the most novelly, for want of a better word, of, of Chandler's novels. Um, in that, I mean, as as you said, um, it doesn't read like a crime novel. Um, I, I I wonder how far. I mean, The Big Sleep does read like a crime novel. The Farewell, Farewell, My Lovely, slightly less so, but they're not crime novels in the way that someone like Mickey Spillane writes them, um, or even Earl Stanley Gardner. Um, and Earl Stanley Gardner, uh, creator of, of Perry Mason, was a was a sort of uh, mentor and a, and a friend to Chandler in the early days. But Chandler was, with every book that he he did, was always trying to sort of push push the form slightly. He wanted to be, he always wanted to be a, a serious novelist. I, I I think he found crime writing. Uh, as a as a way to become a novelist uh, and to get paid for it, uh, there's a there's a letter he writes to a friend very early on, which says basically that you know, you this is him speaking to his friend. You see me as this literary man, and now you see me writing these 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 you know pulpy stories. Um, but let me tell you, this is this is um, an opportunity to to write an, an, a novel and get paid for it. Uh, I'm paraphrasing paraphrasing there and and so by the time he 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 came to the long goodbye which is the the, the sort of penultimate novel um uh, in the in the marlowe series um he's 
trying to escape Marlowe to a certain extent. Um, he's trying to sort of move beyond Marlowe. Uh, and, 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 and we could talk a bit more about that uh, later. Um, but by doing so, he sort of creates this novel, writes this novel that features a detective and features some detection but really is much more about the relationships of between Marlowe and Lennox and Marlowe and, and the Wades uh, and Marlowe and, 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 and Los Angeles as well. Um, and I think that when you're, when, when you're trying to pick a charmed novel that might, you know, sway an audience of, of skeptics, maybe, you know, who might say, well, I don't read crime fiction. You know, I, I, I only read books that are, you know, Booker Prize nominated or whatever. Um, uh, the Long Goodbye is a really good example of, 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 of an, a crime novel that does something far more and, and is, is more literary, as you said. Um, that, that isn't to say that's what Anthony Burgess was, was trying to do. I, I think, I, I don't think he was sort of trying to convince skeptics, but I think that it, it sits well. It's in a very appealing novel. Um, in its own right, um, and works on its own terms, without and is a crime novel, and it's a crime. It's a loosely you know, loose crime novel as well. Um, but it's interesting thing about what the reputation of the book was in 1984 as well. I, I, I'm glad you asked that because I think it was beginning to sort of get in the 70s and 80s. Chandler. You know, starts to get a bit more academic attention. Um, the first biography came out in the late seventies, for example, um, and genre fiction uh, was getting a bit more a a attention in the academy. And so Chandler was was for all the reasons that I've said, Chandler's a, a sort of good example of of how a crime novel can can appeal academically as well. There's a lot to to sort of mine in terms of use of language and character study in there um less so narratively thinking at least at least as a sort of crime narrative because it's sort of you know if you, if you look at it as a sort of plot it's bad <laughs> you know the plot barely makes sense but 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 Chandler sort of with his sort of use of language and characterization makes it work in quite an extraordinary way the thing that changes, of course, in the in I think well, really in the seventies and the eighties is, is, you know, the canon wars that come along in the eighties and nineties and start to sort of look at Chandler through a different lens. He, he doesn't treat women very well. Um, the queer readings um, are pretty rich because Marlowe is complicated. You know, his sexuality is, is complicated, but. But his attitude to, to, to gay people is, is generally pretty poor. Some of the things about race uh, uh, are pretty, pretty, pretty nasty as well. And so 84 is maybe not the height uh, of Chandler's studies. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But, but sort of the time, a time when before kind of Chandler got it... it got kind of exposed in the canon wars, I think, is, is, is perhaps the, the nicest way of saying it. You've made me think about uh, what you said about Marlowe's sexuality. Something that, that 
um, really highlighted it for me was watching the Robert Altman film after mm. reading The Long Goodbye. And the Robert Altman film is an extremely strange film for many reasons. (laughs) Uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, Chandler would have appreciated uh, Marlowe being turned into a sort of cold-blooded murderer and (laughs) that sort of thing. But one thing that it highlights that I found in the book and in the film is Marlowe is weirdly sort of sexless. Um, Mm. He he doesn't seem interested either way and he sort of certainly in the film sort of rises above it there's a scene where there's some sort of students in the flat in the apartment next to his and uh you know they're they're sort of hippies and dancing and topless and that sort of thing and he doesn't seem to care about them he offers to go to the shop for them (laughs) but um that that's sort of true of the novel as well isn't it yeah, I mean, it is true. It is true of Chandler's novels, full stop. Right? They, when it comes to sex, they are strange. I think is is the the kind of simplest way of putting it. Pulp fiction, writ large, has a reputation for being uh, about you know violence and and sex. Um, you know, the women in it are always voluptuous sex sirens um and you know the men sort of beat one another up to sort of win their win their affection and that's yeah a <laughs> broad generalization obviously but but yeah roughly is true china does not fit into that mold at all i mean there is a sex scene there's a sort of sex scene in 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 the long goodbye um where he is, it's, he's put Roger Wade to bed one night and um, Aileen, his, uh, Roger Wade's wife, Aileen Wade, tries to seduce Marlowe. Uh, and I'm just seeing if I can find the passage. Oh, here we go. I'm just going to read a, read a, a, a passage. Um, uh, put me on the bed, she breathed. I did that. Putting my arms around her, I touched bare skin, soft skin, soft yielding flesh. I lifted her and carried her the few steps to the bed and lowered her. She kept her arms around my neck. She was making some kind of whistling noise in her throat. Then she threshed about and moaned. This was murder. I was as erotic as a stallion. I was losing control. You don't get that sort of invitation from that sort of woman very often, anywhere. Candy saved me. And I mean, there's just so much in that. What does erotic as a stallion mean? Why, why is it murder? Why does Candy save him? It's, it isn't quite that Marlowe is sexless as much as, as Marlowe is, is repulsed by by sex, I think. Um, that is uh, slightly less clear in, in this passage, but there's a bit in um, The Big Sleep uh, where uh, he finds uh, Carmen Sternwood naked in, in his bed when Marlowe comes home and, and this very attractive young woman is naked in his bed uh, looking to seduce him. Uh, and he throws her out and he finds a single strand of her hair left 
um, after after his eviction and his reaction is to tear the bed to pieces and this incredibly violent response to this very inanimate uh, element of her, which weirdly is echoed in The Long Goodbye as well. Um, he finds a, 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 a hair, I think Linda Loring, and, and, and remakes the bed afterwards. Um, and it's, it's as if Marlowe can't deal with, with Zeb. Um, and I, I think that is, is a sort of really Chandler response. Chandler had a very, very complicated relationship, um, when it came to women, uh, he, he, you know, he lived with his mother for a very long time, um, very, very close, but also, you know, very complicated relationship. Um, she disapproved of his marriage to, to, to Sissy and it, it, Sissy was older than him. Um, and they wouldn't, they couldn't get married until his mother died. Uh, and, and while Sissy, well, well Chandler would always claim that, that they had a, a very active sex life, it never really, never really holds true in, in my view. And he, he writes these poems very early on about, about sort of not wanting to, but, and, a knight protecting a woman's purity and chastity. And I've always taken that to sort of mean that the, the, the ideal woman in, in Chandler's mind is a, is a pure virgin and, and sex sort of sullies them. Uh, and I think you see that coming out in, in Marlowe. I think, I think there's something of, of, of Chandler and Marlowe here that, that, that sees a woman who is sexually active as somehow less of a woman, and 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 that these days, well, I mean, at the time of writing as well, is a fairly uncomfortable thought to articulate. I think. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Uh, just thinking about your biography of Chandler, the one thing that comes back again and again is uh, Chandler's sort of relationship with the knight figure, the sort of Galahad figure. Um, yeah, and I, I wonder if you can you can talk a, a little bit more about how that attitude to sort of chivalry or classical chivalry as as it is mm -hmm. um, finds its way into into Marlowe. It, it finds its way into Chandler very very briefly in in Dulwich College, though so the school, the public school he was at in in London, uh, which like many of these many of public schools in the, in the you know late nineteenth early twentieth century was steeped in. And, and chivalry uh and was one of the the reasons that, that this kind of um this idea of, of that we were familiar with from world war one with young men running you know to, to, to war like it's a, a game because they see it as their not just their duty but 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 you know a, a kind of yeah i mean I, I, as their duty um and that element of, of 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 chivalry really gets gets inculcated early on at school, and it's compounded by his relationship with his mother. You know, he he his father was a a, a, a drunk um, and would beat his mother up. And Chandler seems to have witnessed this as a very young boy. This is, I should say, when they were living in Chicago, where Chandler was born, before they moved to. Uh, before they moved to the UK, um, and uh, Chandler would would witness his drunken father beat his mother up, uh, and not be able to do anything about it. Uh, you know, as as, you know, as 
he couldn't because he was a young a young child. His mother ends up leaving and divorcing, uh, well, certainly leaving um, Morris Chandler and taking Raymond to um, to London, which is very unusual. You should should you know point out in you know, late nineteenth century, very very rare for for for, for women um, to leave their husbands um and and to you know to flee uh, in such a way but anyway so, so point being is that Chandler kind of grows up with a with a with a, a desire to protect his mother that he may have may or may not have failed to do in his mind he also um uh you know goes to the school in which which chivalry is everywhere um literally you know it's on the walls um of the of the school and is really sort of this 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 code the idea of honor um is really deeply part of of, of of what you kind of get at someone like Dulwich we've got at someone like Dulwich um and it comes out in his really early poetry so you know for your listeners who, who are less familiar with Chandler's uh life than than than, than I am but Chandler sort of his first sort of writing gig was working in in Bloomsbury doing very very bad poetry um, for the for the for the weekly periodicals and the the daily periodicals um, in this sort of like very late Victorian style, uh, often about knights and about uh, damsels. Uh, you know, it was riddled with chivalry, and this disappears to a large part. Um, because Chandler stops writing after he moves to California, uh, or he stopped you know, public writing um, after he moves to California. Um, but he has Chandler has a sense of how someone should behave. He has developed this this um, sense of you know from school and from his childhood of, of, of how a man uh, should be. Um, and then when he comes to write his novels, um, he, he brings out that code, that, that chivalric code you know, gets, gets dropped into, into Philip Marlowe. Um, and you see it really, really early on. I, I think it's in the, in Fail My Lovely, Marlowe describes himself as a shop soiled Galahad. Galahad being the sort of man who, you know, going back to our, our questions about sex, Galahad is famously uh, pure and, and a virgin uh, throughout. Um, you know, and that's sort of how, how Chandler viewed Marlowe. Marlowe had to be, had to live with this sort of code of behavior, um, that is you know, purely chivalric, you know, and, and, and Marlowe is the knight. He is the, the, the sort of the, 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 the damaged knight who tries to resolve, uh, social ills, um, through his through his action in an effort to sort of purify society, I think, um, and you see that you see that you know in the long goodbye. The, the, one of the reasons that that Marlowe and Lennox, when when I hope I'm not spoiling it, but for your listeners, but but when um, I think I think Burgess does that in his review in ninety nine novels. So anyone following he does, along, he does. They already yeah, know. You're absolutely- Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so <laughs> with Lennox's return at the end, um, you know, one of the reasons why 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 Marlowe can reject 
Lennox is because he realizes he, what what drew them together at the beginning was what, what Marlowe seems to see as a shared code. You know, they're both gentlemen, and they both operate in a in a particular way. Uh, maybe not, you know, a pub, you know, not an obvious code, but it's an implicit code that they seem to share that involves you know respect to people and 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 you know doing the right thing. Um, but Lennox betrays that by when he takes the blame for Sylvia Lennox's murder that leads to an unnecessary death of, 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 of Roger Wade as he, he sees it, uh, as Marlowe sees it. And so Marlowe in the final scenes rec- you know, sees Lennox as, as not quite living, failing to live up to Marlowe's standards. You know, he doesn't have the chivalric code, but share the same chivalric code in the way that he originally thought. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why uh, their friendship sort of dissolves so abruptly. Yeah, and you you mentioned uh, when you were talking there uh, briefly about Chandler's international identity, his complicated mm. identity. He described himself as Anglo-Irish-American, and <laughs> actually the, the two main influences are, are Britain and, and America. How do you think these... Uh, cultural influences show up in his work generally and The Long Goodbye specifically? Because I think The Long Goodbye, in a way, has... I mean, it's quite a British book in a way, weirdly, for a a sort Mm. of novel set in Los Angeles and is meant to be the sort of pinnacle of, of, uh, you know, that American pulp uh, thing. So how do those influences show up? Can I ask, what is it that makes you think it's a British novel? What what does that mean? Well, I think the, a lot of the characters have sort of British influences uh, or or they've lived in Britain for a while or speak with mm, a British mm. accent or, or that yeah. sort of thing. And even, even the drinking culture in the novel, it's not <laughs> like bourbon or anything like that. It's, it's like um, sort of gin, gymlets and... Yeah, you know, the sort yeah, of yeah. the the sort of drinks that you would have at, at the English gentleman's club, but they're doing them at sort of seedy <laughs> bars in LA and that sort of thing. So I think that's what I mean about about the being quite a, a strong British identity within the core of the novel. Do you know, it's really really interesting. I um, I see exactly what you mean, and I had never thought of it in those terms before. I, the idea, I never sort of thought about it just purely from drink the drinks perspective but you're absolutely right um the the i mean marlo does drink a great deal of bourbon in the in the book there's a moment when he's at the wade's house where he downs an entire bottle to go to sleep um and wade roger wade is a bourbon drinker definitely but but you're right that the drinks that he shares with terry lennox um and then uh linda loring are gimlets, which are um, which are gin based, and famously, um, this is Chandler's own recipe, I think, but for the gimlet, which is to have which is to have half gin and half roses, lime cordial, um, and, and I mean that that in and of itself, roses, lime cordial, is, yeah, exactly, is exactly British through and through. <laughs> no, I, that's fascinating. I just, I just. Absolutely right. I've never, never, never thought of it like that. I, there's, there's a there's a sort of essay in there somewhere, about, you know, what with the resurgence of gin. Um, but but 
Jana, it, it isn't surprising that 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 Jana would would you know take that kind of international approach. Um, he was he was born in Chicago to uh, an Irish mother and an American father, um, and the, his mother had had brought up in a very strict Quaker household in in Ireland, in Waterford, um, and had had for all intents and purposes run away disappeared one night and fled to America um, uh, to escape her parents. And, um, you know, ended up in this, this fairly unhappy marriage, very unhappy marriage. Um, and then, you know, left with Chandler again, you know, first to Nebraska and then back to Ireland where she had some sort of uh, rapprochement with her, her parents, uh, but not a kind of perfect one by any stretch of the imagination. Um, she ended up living in London where her uh, family kind of kept a bunch of houses. They were reasonably well off, um, you know, and, and they sort of lived under the patronage of, of, of an uncle uh, and he paid for, for, for a chance to go to Dulwich. Um, but they moved around London a lot. Um, because they were all, they're basically living in the empty houses of the of the family the, the, the houses that weren't otherwise up, out for rent they were sort of um, shipped around so they never really settled or they they, they had a very itinerant life in, in London and that, that's partly because Florence Chandler was viewed as as the black sheep of the family because she sort of not only had she run away but then she'd come back with a with a child uh, and a divorce so. Um, she was not really a, 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 a sort of ideal daughter in the eyes, eyes of the family. Um, Chandler, you know, goes to school but doesn't go to university, uh, joins the civil service, which he hates, um, but he did very well to get in. Uh, I think he came second top in the in the civil service exams, uh, or at least he said he did, which is pretty impressive. Um, but um, he hates the civil service goes on, tries to be a writer, does that very, very badly. Um, as I've mentioned several times now, his poetry is truly awful. Particularly his, his early poetry is truly awful. Um, and uh, ends up deciding to move to London. Uh, sorry, deciding to move to America. In 1912, he gets on a boat um, and goes to, 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 to California, to San Francisco first. Uh, and then to Los Angeles, and and this is this is this is key. He he, he arrives in Los Angeles in 1912, 1913, which is just when LA is beginning to change into the city that we know of it as today. So, up to that point, there was a limit on the size of Los Angeles. It could only be about because of because of natural resources. There wasn't enough water to 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 provide for more than about a hundred thousand people. Um. But in 1913, the, 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 the Holland Aqueduct opens um, and that brings water down from Northern California and beyond into the Los Angeles basin. And that provides uh, more, more water for, for, the, for the city to grow and the city then starts rapidly developing. And so, so Chandra arrives at this kind of fulcrum in history, this moment when, when, when Los Angeles is, is just another city on the West Coast, uh, 
and watches it as it grows into uh, the sort of leading city on the West Coast with apologies to, to San Francisco. Um, and, and obviously sees the movie industry kind of, you know, grow. Um, uh, he would like to take part in it, but, but he, I think as being, being an outsider, um, yeah, he was an outsider in, in, in Dulwich because he had a slight American accent. He was an outsider in LA because he had a slight British accent. Um, I think these things positioned him well to see the LA that we know today develop and to be able to see beyond it, to be able to see that sort of seediness that, that might not have been visible in quite uh, with quite such clarity um, as, as you would find as, an, as an, an, a native Los Angelino uh, might have, if you see what I mean. Like his, his, his internationalness his outside, made him an outsider and made him see more clearly what LA was. Uh, and that's why he can write so cogently about the city, um, not creating it, it. He's not a socio-realist writer. He's not sort of, you know, holding up, a, holding up a, a sort of accurate mirror to LA in any stretch of the imagination, but he does kind of get its atmosphere. He does get its kind of corrupting influence. He, he, and I, I think that's what being an outsider lets him see. And then in The Long Goodbye, I mean, the Long Goodbye comes at a really interesting time in Chandler's life. He he's up to this point. Well, he's had a, his career thus far has been has been okay. He's he's had a successful career. Or, sorry, let me rephrase that. His career so far has been okay as a novelist. You know, he's he's made some money, but really it's it's as a film movie writer that 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 his his something has provided any money for him. And throughout his life, he'd always wanted to take Sissy, his wife, to London. But they couldn't, well, for a long time, they couldn't afford it. Then there was the war. Um, and then she was unwell. And they start to go back for the first time in, I think, 1950. And they spend this wonderful time in London, both of them. Um, and in London, Chandler has a better reputation than in the US. He's seen, you know, as Anthony Burgess, you know, identifies him as a slightly more as a more literary writer. Uh, whereas in America he's seen as just a crime writer. I said just in, in, in quotes. So 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 in, in London he's sort of cele- he's a celebrated novelist. Um and 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 he he it reawakens a certain passion in him for the city. Unfortunately he he kind of when he goes back uh, to, to Los Angeles, Sissy's health takes a, a turn for the worse. She's quite elderly at this point. Um, she she is in her her final years, um, and he writes the long goodbye. And I think as she's dying, and, and channels something of that into the book. But but his his channeling his 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 frustration brings out this sort of you know desire to to kind of. Britishify, maybe if that's that's the right word. Some of the characters and some of the experiences, and I think that uh, I think you know that accounts for for some some of the, the the kind of the the presence of the UK in it. There's also a very very practical reason. It was it was published first by Hamish Hamilton in the UK, 
yeah, I think Chana may have started to see himself more as a British, a writing for a British audience than an American audience at this time. And so, you know, maybe there's something there as well. He was trying to kind of, you know, appeal to, to, to his UK audience by making everyone a little bit more familiar. But, that, but that's a, a, a guess. I, I did have a question prepared about the process of writing uh, The Long Goodbye while his wife was dying. It was such a huge event for him that I wondered how it changed his approach to writing mystery fiction. So can you see any differences between the approach to The Long Goodbye, the way characters are drawn in The Long Goodbye, and some of the earlier Marlowe novels? To China great regret was that he didn't dedicate um, The Long Goodbye to Sissy. He never dedicated a book to her um, and and would always, you know, after she died, would always regret that he didn't you know, do that The Long Goodbye. And I, I think that the reason why he regretted The Long Goodbye is partly because of the timing, but, but also because he kind of saw it in a slightly different light to his other books, like a slightly different project. Certainly that's how it started out. I mean, the, there is a version of the long goodbye with that, that is a third person novel, entirely written in the third person, in which Marlowe barely appears and is a walk-on character. Um, Char- that's how Chandler envisioned writing it. He was at this time in his career, he was kind of sick of of, of Marlowe to a certain extent tired of, of, of Marlowe, a little bit like Roger Wade. I mean, Roger Wade articulates, you know, what it's like to be a, a, a novelist writing your, you know, I think it's his, Roger Wade's 12th novel he's working on and how tired he is of the, the same kind of things. And there's a bit of Chandler in that, I think. He, he writes in some of his letters about how tired of Marlowe. And so he envisages this very, very different book, um, which would be, which you know, he starts writing, gets so far into it, uh, and can't make it work. You know, Chandler, um, he just couldn't actually, you know, write in this this style uh, or in this this manner. And in part, that's because at this this time we we've not really talked about this, but at this time he's drinking very very heavily. Um, Chandler was an alcoholic throughout his 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 sort of adult life with various periods of sobriety. And um, you know, in, in the fifties, he was he was he was drinking a, a great deal, and so part of the reason that he he he, he struggled might be that his his the alcoholism had sort of you know dulled his his ability to to, to write a different kind of novel, uh, and and the kind of novel he'd always wanted to write. He he maintained this ambition to get away from crime fiction. You know, as he described it, he always he always saw crime fiction as a stepping stone to something else, um, and that something else being what we would probably think of as a, as a sort of literary and in inverted commas novel today. Um, he wanted to write that kind of serious, serious literary novel, um, and and that early draft of the Long Goodbye, which we only know about, I should say, because he talks about it in his letters. There's no manuscript; it was burnt, unfortunately. Um, was his, his 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 effort, and he couldn't make it work, and so he rewrites the longer bio as a Marlowe novel, um, 
whilst Sissy is dying, whilst he's drinking. And I, and I think the reason it is this kind of, as I described it earlier, as a very novelly novel, is for this reason. You know, the, the, the murder of, of Sylvia Lennox happens off stage. You know, it's, it's one of the only novels in which, I think it's the only example of a, of a murder that, that, that Marlowe investigates, but where he doesn't discover the body. Um, he only investigates it once he meets the Wades and he starts to wonder what the things, the threads connecting them to the Lennoxes are. And, and, and so, you know, it's a, it's a strange book in that sense. You know, it, 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 it is all about Marlowe. It's all about his relationship with Terry Lennox and his relationship with the Wades. It's not, you know, a murder mystery in, in any kind of reasonable definition of the term. And and I think it's because he was trying to write the novel he always wanted to write and failed. And in that failure, by rewriting it, he kind of pushes the form, he's testing the form um, beyond its limits, or, or maybe not beyond, but finding where those limits are. And he could, I don't think, that had he decided this was the novel he was going to write, had he had he sat down and said, oh, "I'm going to write a Marlowe novel and it's going to be about you know this, this, and that," yeah, you know, I don't think he'd have written the Long Goodbye. I think it, 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 the Long Goodbye is, is a product of failure uh, and ambition, um, and and an inability to deliver that ambition, and 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 he ends up producing this kind of incredible book, um, and you know the background to all of this is 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 Sissy's sort of uh illness and, and 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 she dies a year after the book comes out uh in the uk she dies in 54 it's published in the uk in 53 um you know it really was his effort i think to try and you know show her what he could do um and not quite pull it off but in that failure he pulled something off which was the production of this 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 wonderful novel one of the things that that really stuck out for me with the long goodbye is the unexpected literary references that are in the book. <laughs> um, yeah. You don't expect that from crime writers in general, but certainly the, those American crime writers of, of the early 20th century. Um, they're not about literature. They're about tough guys solving crimes and yet at one point Marlowe gives a copy of T.S. Eliot's collected poems to a taxi driver is that right? I think he asks if he wants them and the, the taxi driver has already read them something like that I know the moment you mean um I'm pretty sure let me see if I can find it but um I'm pretty sure that there's that the, the, the taxi driver rejects them Certainly, there's a moment where Linda Loring's um, uh, chauffeur rejects her, rejects her, um, you know, says he's already read uh, the, the poems of T.S. Eliot. And I, do you know, it's really interesting. I, I know all of the, I, I have, I'm looking at my copy of, of my original copy of, of The Longer by Now. And, um, I have marked out all of these references to um, uh, to the wasteland, 
Kafka, Kierkegaard, all appear, Toscanini. Um, and I, I'm not sure I know what to make of them, um, if I'm honest. You're, you're absolutely right. It is a slightly strange move to make in a, in a crime novel. Um, you know, why be, why make these references? But on the other hand, I'm not sure what work they do other than, you know, showing Marlowe as a sort of well-read man and, and, and maybe doing something around the kind of the assumptions that one, one makes about people in particular jobs. So, I mean, right, you know, I'm thinking about right at the end, um, before he, he runs into Terry Lennox again, there's a moment where um, Linda Loring comes to, comes to, you know, to visit and stay over. And he reads some lines to the chauffeur. And I'll just read a, a, a brief passage. Um, he, this is Amos, put the overnight case down inside the door and she went in past me and left us, she being Linda Loring. Um, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. What does that mean, Mr. Marlowe? That's Amos speaking. Not a bloody thing, it just sounds good. He smiled. That is from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Here's another one. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Does that suggest anything to you, sir? Yeah, it suggests to me that the guy didn't know very much about women. My sentiments exactly, sir. Nonetheless, I admire T.S. Eliot very much. Did you say nonetheless? Well, yes, I did, Mr. Marlowe. Is that incorrect? No, but don't say it in front of a millionaire. He might think you were giving him the hot foot. <laughs> um, and it turns out that Amos is a graduate of Howard University. Um, and there he is working as a chauffeur um, for a wealthy family. I, I guess I think the suggestion is there that, that you know, in LA, a, a city of, of, of this one kind of cinematic culture actually is massively cultured and, and it, it kind of crosses all stripes. Um, and yet he's also sort of wants us to be surprised, I think, that someone, um, he wants us to sort of, you know, look at the position of this chauffeur, you know, well-educated, um, person of color, um, who can't? Who, who knows? Yes, Elliot, but can't get a job other than um, uh, other than as a chauffeur. And I think that I mean, Raymond Chandler had very unpleasant attitudes about race that he he, he describes in his letters and in different books. So that's one moment I think where there's a pretty positive view, um, or maybe an unusually positive view of race, where he's he's saying, um, or unusual for him, I should say. Um, in which he is, he, is, he is drawing our attention to the inequalities of Los Angeles life uh, and how unfair it is to, 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 to people. Um, but, I, you know, I, I wish I had puzzled over this and I, I don't really have a better answer at the moment than that, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I mean, as I was reading it, uh, maybe this is being uncharitable to Chandler, but... I was viewing it as Chandler sort of uh, signaling to his tribe <laughs> that he was better than Pulp Fiction. He was, this is actually a, a literary novel. And uh, 
you know, look at these references. I, I know my stuff. I know, I, know yeah. <laughs> I, I can keep up with you guys. And, uh, you know, from what you tell me about him growing sick of Marlowe and wanting to, to write a novel that wasn't a Marlowe novel, um, that, that could fit in with, with that sort of attitude that he's, uh, more than his reputation suggests. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's very plausible. I yeah, I, I think you're I think you're right. I think he is to a certain extent trying to show off, uh, you know, his his knowledge. I just I just think it's a bit obvious, right? I mean, there are other there is a there is a moment where when Marlow um, is I think meeting Linda Loring certainly another character, and she asks how to spell um, the name Marlowe. Uh, and he says, oh, it's with an E. And I think I think that's a reference to Conrad, because Conrad's Marlowe doesn't have an E. And that seems to be, like, I, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think is really showing off. Um, and, and, uh, you know the the you know the, the kind of thing that the slightly uh, pretentious, well-read people, <laughs> which I was going to say, like I don't want to judge you at all, but certainly no, like, no, like, I'm I'm like, very you know, much of that, of that tribe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we will pick up on that, um, and, and you know, and we'll nod, kind of like, oh, you know, I I, I understand what's happening there. Um, I think I think that would be the smarter way. Do it. And he does it, right? I mean, that, that, that's my point. I think you're probably right. Um, I, and I think it's the combination of these, these two, two direct approaches. But I do wonder if there's something else going on there. And I, I, I don't want to be sort of, um, you know, all this is going to be me being a, a, a pretentious uh, reader, but I don't want to be all figure in the carpet about it. There's <laughs> some sort of mystery and, and behind the, the use of, of, of these literary references. But I, I do... I, it's one of those things I've always told myself I will come back to, and I never have. Um, and it's frustrating. And I, I mean, I reread The Long Goodbye this week, the first time in quite a while, uh, and enjoyed it immensely. And it, it reminded me that, that I, mean, I need to sit down and think about this a little bit more. I'm afraid this is a long way of saying I don't really have a, a very good answer. I, I kind of agree with you. <laughs> we've We've talked about Chandler's sort of complex uh, writing and, and how his uh writing contains some regressive ideas that that readers today might find uncomfortable what do you think chandler's legacy is today and and do you see his influence in any writers working today i think chandler's legacy is is huge and and i think you know kind of hard and in fact to to, to understate um and you know we we're, we're talking very much in terms of fiction here um but also in, in the in the film world as well. I mean, I, I think he wrote the double in the, the screenplay for Double Indemnity with, with with Billy Wilder, which really is one of the the finest examples of of noir filmmaking, you know, ever ever made. And and you know, it's still sort of you know influence of which still rippling through cinema today. I I, I you know, we haven't really talked about his his film work at all, but but I I would just want to kind of mention that that does have this kind of twin career, these, these twin careers. Um, and his influence on, on, on crime writing and just writing in general is, is extraordinary. 
the Mick Heron series, um, which, uh, you know, Slow Horses has just changed its name, uh, or recently changed its name, I, I saw. Um, when, it, when the series first started, it was the Slow Horse series and was a sort of ensemble novel. Or, or first couple of novels are ensemble pieces. Um, but the, the thing that, the kind of character that has all the gravity is, is over which everyone is increasingly orbiting is, 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 is Jackson Lamb, that this sort of re, re, repugnant but brilliant spy master. And now it's the, the Jackson Lamb series. And I think that comes out in the, the TV show a lot more. Two, this idea that that a crime novel, you know, the, the idea of having a central character be be behind the motivation, you know, it is something that that, that Chandler helped create with with Marlowe. You know, as I said, you kind of read Marlowe novels for enchantment. I think I, I, I think Mick Heron's books are, are marvelous, and you definitely read those for the plots as well. Um, but part of the pleasure is 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 the character. Ian Rankin too. Uh, Ian Rankin, uh, you know, like McCarran, is, is a is a is a really good novelist who happens to write about a crime. Um, his his books um, really revolve around the lives of of um, uh, uh, Rebus, Siobhan Clark, and, and Malcolm Fox. Um, and those characters are, are fascinating, and they are also um, it's also there are also novels of increasingly novels about Scotland itself, the, the kind of state of Scotland. Um, they're, they're kind of state of a, of a nation novels, but but for want of a better word, um, I don't think that those would be as possible without Ren Chandler. I think Chandler was the one who showed that the crime fiction could be literary. And, and, and could be used in, in, in these wonderful ways um, to do something more than just be read for, for, for the plot. Um, I, I don't know what Ian Rankin or, or, or Mick Heron would say about that. They may, they may completely disagree. But I don't think, I think that's why we have to be quite you know, clear about Roman Chandler. We do have to look directly at the things that you know, are uncomfortable, his attitudes to race, his attitudes towards women, his attitudes, attitudes towards gay people. These these are important things to 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 look in 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 the face because he is so influential, because his legacy ripples through 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 crime writing today. Um, I think too, the style that 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 he brought. I mean, no one will ever imitate the style, and it's really interesting. I think that 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 the Chandler estate is trying, you know. To, to re to release new novels every every year every couple of years or so, and they started um, with sort of uh, John Banville writing his Benjamin Black did a did a did a novel um, the Black Eyed Blonde which does try to a certain extent to ventriloquise Chandler um, and works to you know varying degrees. Um, more recently, they have. You know, the, the, the most recent novel by Joe, Joe Ide um, is a third-person novel set in contemporary Los Angeles um, where uh, Philip Marlowe is still a PI, but it features his father, <laughs> who's, a, you know, who's a, in a homicide. I mean, it's just like, it's a world, of, it's, it's just connected, but not connected to, to, to Marlowe. And it, it kind of works because, because it's 
so loosely part of a part of that, but it, it is part of the world. It's part of the sort of the Chandler universe, I guess. Um, and I, I think that, you know, shows how there is something still that, that Chandler can only, or Marlowe can only say about, about, about the state of places like Los Angeles. I think it'll be really interesting to see if anyone ever takes, how people take Marlowe out of LA. It's only been done to a certain extent. You know, Poodle Springs Mystery, the Poodle Springs Mystery is an unfinished Chandler novel set in Palm Springs. Uh, Lawrence Osborne wrote a novel that isn't really set in LA. Uh, set in sort of borderlands. Um, but I still think that, that, that Marlowe's sort of great success is, is writing about Los Angeles, is, is, is a character in Los Angeles. And I, I think that, you know, that's what he will continue to bring to literature. Um, to bring it back to your, your initial question about, about influence, the world of crime writing would be very different without Raymond Chandler. I, I don't see us having, uh, in quite the same way, uh, these long police procedural series, um, you know, the most successful of which in the UK at least are, are now Ian Rankin and, and J.K. Rowling slash Robert Galbraith. Um, you know, those probably wouldn't exist in quite the same way without Raymond Chandler. And, you know, his achievement, his ability to show us how character can can um, be superior to plot, um, it, it is a is a wonderful wonderful thing that he should be and, and is rightly celebrated for. Um, we just have to bear in mind that there are a bunch of other things that, that we also have to to, to deal with um, because some of his attitudes were were, were were challenging. I think it's really interesting how you mentioned John Banville um, and taking Marlowe out of out of LA because I, I think out of all the writers you mentioned, the person who wears the influence of Chandler most heavily is Mar is uh, Banville. Um, mm. Certainly in his Benjamin Black novels, the Quirk novels, um, Christine Falls, for example, is just a Chandler novel. It's, <laughs> um, but it's set in Dublin. And really what he's taken from Chandler is is obviously the characterization of the main detective character even though quirk isn't a detective um but uh dublin is described in in similar ways ch that chandler describes la um obviously it's a very different place obviously there are different things to focus on um but dublin is a character in that novel in the same way la is a character in in chandler's novels so I, I think there is, that is happening, and and perhaps that's why Banville got the got the gig to write a, a Marlowe novel. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly think the Benjamin Black novels are indebted to Chandler, and not only that, they are a conscious attempt to write a Chandler esque novel. I think that's almost certainly true. Um, I'm not sure. I wonder what John Banville would say if if you asked him that question. But but. I think he would. I think. I think. I think that's almost certainly true. I, I. I would add though that that I do think this idea of the city being a character uh, is something that Chandler really sort of brought in. And you're at you're, you're, you're LA is is so central to to, to 
to Philip Marlowe and to, to Chalmers' achievement. Uh, and you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, the Benjamin Black novels with Quirk, really Dublin is, is the backdrop. But, but so too with Ian Rankin's novels in Edinburgh, that not all of the novels are set in Edinburgh. Um, Edinburgh really is a, a, a character that within, within his work, perhaps a better way of saying that is actually that Scotland is the other character. Um, and I think too, in, in the sort of JK Rowling, Robert Garbright series, London, I, I, I still live in London and, and, and one of the great pleasures for me for reading those books, the, the Robert Garbright, uh, Corbin Stripe series, is I know all the pubs he goes drinking in, in and around um, uh, Soho and Tottenham Court Road because I used to be there all the time as well. Um, and and that ability to recreate the city is is a kind of wonderful function of the novel, you know, the, the novel kind of writ large that, that I think Chandler kind of mastered. And now we see repeated again and, and again and again, Robert Galbraith slash J.K. Rowling isn't trying to imitate, I think, the voice and is much more plot-orientated uh, than, than John Bamble is. John Bamble really is a, a sort of, you know, trying to create an atmosphere. Um, but but this idea of, of, of the inanimate, not the inanimate is the wrong word, but you know what I mean, that the city or the country being a character feels something that, that, that Chandler you know, made doable through crime fiction. Dickens obviously did it with London, um, but in a different way. You know, I think that the, the one of his great achievements, one of several great achievements of Roman Chandler is, is that you know, introduction of, of, of the city as, as, as the additional character in, on the stage of the, the crime novel. One final question. It's a question that we ask all of our guests on 99 Novels. Uh, if you could add a hundredth book to Burgess's <laughs> list, what would it be and why? I've been dreading this question. I, I, it is so difficult to, I, I, to, to, to answer. And I, I have, I'm going to, I'm going to, going to hedge slightly, um, with, uh, with two, two answers, if that's all right. That's fine. So, so I, I kind of was, I was reading the, the introduction um to to 99 novels um and on the one hand it seems like anti is is interested in what the form can do you know he wants to find novels that that that, that uh yeah he says i have concentrated mainly on works which have brought something new in technique or view of the world to the form um and so i i sort of my my answer to that that the novel that i would add the list from that angle is um, uh, is Midnight Children by Salman Rushdie, which I think also falls into the category of being published between 1939 and, and, and 1984. Um, yeah, that is a truly wonderful example of this kind of polyphonic novel that recreates an extraordinary world in a magical way. Um, and 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 you know, the use of language and uh, is just magnificent. And I I, I don't think Sam Rushdie's ever quite managed to do that again. Um, and and but but he you know glad he keeps trying. Um, so so that would be my sort of my answer to that side of it. But 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 Burgess also wants you know 
he what he looks for he also says he looks for a new set of sub-literary criteria that have not been formulated. Um, he doesn't just want sort of literary novels. He wants novels in which character matters. Um, and and so I want to sort of throw in, um, I I guess I you know the the novel that I the novels that I have most recommended to people over the years, and um, for that for that matter, you know novels which I've I've gotten a great deal of pleasure for are, are the Ian Rankin Rebus novels. You know I'm not going to pick one. Uh, oh no no I, no that's the question. Isn't it? I'm gonna I'm gonna pick one which is Black and Blue, uh, which is the first. Um, Ian Rankin novel that I read. Interesting enough, shortly after reading Raymond Chandler, um, uh, they they kind of came very very close to one another. But but Ian Rankin is one of those novelists that I continue to read almost yeah you know, instantly. As soon as the book comes out, I I, I want to grab it. Um, and I think you know he, his ability to to sort of tell a story is is, is second to none. But also, you know, you know to, to describe the state of Scotland, as I mentioned earlier, to write about, you know, the, these fascinating characters of, 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 of Rebus and Siobhan Clark and, and Malcolm Fox. And, the, you know, the ways in which they interact, I, I think, is extraordinary. And I will always, when someone comes to me and says, you know, what is the crime novel? I want to get into crime. I want to read crime fiction. What should I read first? Um, and... Uh, and they want to stop contemporarily, of course, because otherwise I'd recommend Roman Chandler. Um, uh, I, I do start with with Black and Blue because that's a really extraordinary crime novel, um, and, and and Ian Rankin really is a, a sort of master of the form. That's great, a great answer. A two really fascinating choices, both in the R section of the bookshop as well, so you don't need to look too far. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Tom, for, for joining us on uh, the 99 Novels podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's been great. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. A mysterious something in the light a biography of Raymond Chandler by Tom Williams is out now from your favourite place to buy books. Tom Williams can be found online at twilliams81 on Twitter and Instagram. To find out more about Anthony Burgess and how to support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?